just as we enter into this and just pray his uh, just blessing upon our time. Heavenly Father, thank you just for your word. Uh, I'm thankful, God, that we have this, this book that we hold in our hands that is just not, just not a normal book, just written by normal authors. or it, It's a book inspired by you, written by people, but they're speaking your very word. And, and, and Father, we thank you that we have this a guide to our lives, truth for our lives. God, in it we find knowledge and wisdom. Many times through it we're encouraged, challenged, convicted. God, whatever we need tonight as individuals, Lord, you know. And, and Father, we just give you permission, permission right now, Lord, to speak to us, Lord. Just speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Even if it's something that's difficult to hear, God, I just pray that you would share it with us. Help us to, to know exactly what you want from us, Lord. I just pray that the words that come from my mouth, God, would be yours, that you would guide and lead this service, that you'd be glorified in it. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and just um, pray that you would move, into, move tonight in us, Lord, and, and just be blessed through um, what, what we do here tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, well, so tonight we're going to be doing something a, a little bit different than I normally do. I don't, I don't have like an actual one passage we're going to be preaching out of. We're actually going to be looking um, at tonight a, a number of prophecies, if you will, um, when it comes to um, the birth of Jesus and, and some stuff kind of surrounding that. You know, so when, when you think about Christmas, um, I don't know what comes to your mind, but as Christmas season kind of rolls around for me, I think of a lot of different things. Um, I'm kind of a Christmas nut. My wife and kids will probably agree with you. Um, if you've seen my house, you'll probably understand what I'm talking about. Um, but, but I love Christmas. I love the festivities. I love the lights. I love the music. I love the cookies. I love the snacks. I love everything about Christmas, right? Um, but it's not just the, that. I mean, I love the, the whole present thing, too. Not getting them necessarily, but I love to give, you know, to be able to, to give to, to the people I care about and love. There's something fun about that. There's something fun about Christmas time when it comes to, to family traditions and, um, you know, big thing for us, we go to the Christmas tree farm, you know, every year and pick out a Christmas tree and do different things and come home and, and have some cocoa and watch. I mean, it's just fun, right? And it's just being around family and, and getting together. It, it really is just a special, special time of year, but, but it's more than that, obviously, for us as Christians. You know, it's not just about the festivities or the getting together and eating too much and, and having food comatose and stuff like that, right? It's, it's more about um, the one we're celebrating. You know, it's more about Jesus and his birth and, and really just, just celebrating that, that great gift that God has given us, um, which is Christ, who, who came as a baby, but to grow to a, to a man who would eventually go to a cross and, and die for our sins, right? And, and so as we think about Christmas, most of the time as Christians, that's generally speaking where our minds go to. But as you think about the Christmas story, how often do your, does your mind go to this idea that we serve a, a, a sovereign, faithful, trustworthy God? And all the things and the events that we celebrate around Christmas when it comes to Scripture and, and the Christmas narrative and all that, it just screams that God is sovereign. It just screams that He is faithful. It just screams that He is trustworthy. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at tonight um, as we um, kind of work through some of these things. Now, the Old Testament contains 
prophecies about um, the Messiah, which we know is Jesus, kind of all over the place. A prophecy was essentially, uh, during the, the Old Testament times, would be a man of God, uh, somebody speaking for God, um, most of the time foretelling something that was going to happen, as we'll see today, things that didn't happen for, for centuries afterwards. Um, there was a man named Alfred Endersheim said that he found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah in his times, and he said in his studies, he, he believed that Jesus fulfilled around 300 of those prophecies from his, his birth and everything that happened kind of between that and his resurrection. Um, there was this man named Peter um, Stoner who, who wrote a book, um, and, and, and part of a book he was talking about these prophecies of Jesus. And he, he was kind of a mathematician you know, to, to, to an extent, and, and he said that the odds of Jesus fulfilling even just eight prophecies, not even 300, but just eight, was a number that was just like ridiculous. The, the, the odds were like one in 10 to the 17th power, meaning it's like one with like 17 zeros after it. I mean, it's, it's a really, really big number, and because my mind just wants to know how big a number that is, I did some figuring, and if you multiply the eight billion people on earth today by 12 and a half million times, that's how, much, how big that number was. Those are the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight of those prophecies. And he kind of illustrated it like this. He said, if you take a bunch of silver dollars and go to the state of Texas, fill them two feet deep from border to border all the way around, and then blindfold somebody and put an X on one silver dollar and bury it somewhere out in the middle of Texas, and then you send them in and say you get one shot to pick up the right coin. That's the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies. But how amazing is it that already in, in his, you know, birth to his resurrection, he, he already fulfilled like 300 of them. The odds are beyond what our wildest imagination can even kind of conceive. Well, today we're obviously not going to be looking at all 300 of those. We're really going to be focused on just a handful of them, eight of them that we're going to be um, talking about really just surrounding his birth and, and kind of the, the, his early childhood, like as an infant, they're kind of just surrounding the, the Christmas narrative, as you will. And just as we do, just be amazed at how sovereign God is. I mean, be amazed that, you know, that, that these things spoken were spoken literally centuries before this ever happened, and just everything that had to take place for them to actually come to fruition and, and, and actually happen the way it was said. And the first one we're going to be looking at tonight is I don't know if it's so much a prophecy, but very prophetic in nature. And, it, and it's this, it kind of revolves around the, the genealogy of Jesus. The, the promises that, that God foretold to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David. For instance, we, we find all the one about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, where he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, that, that was something that, like, how would that be fulfilled in Abraham's life, that all the people of the earth would be blessed through this one old man that got this promise at, like, you know, 70-some years old or whatever he was at the time. But what's interesting is that the same promise was given to his son Isaac in Genesis 26-4. He told him the same thing, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He said the same thing and repeated that promise through Jacob, which was Isaac's son in Genesis 28-14. He says, through you, your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God repeats this. How does that happen? How, how will the whole world be blessed through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob? 
And then a different um, word was given to Judah when, when Jacob was an old man when they were in Egypt. And, and Joseph, or Jacob was kind of given his blessing to his sons. This is what he spoke in prophetically to Judah, his son. In Genesis 49 and verse 10, 10, he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah. Scepter, really the idea of, of a ruler, right? He says, Nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Well, who in the world is that talking about? Somebody that's going to have a scepter, who's going to be king, who's going to rule, and not just anywhere, he's going to rule all nations. I mean, we, we think of the scepter going to David because eventually David really became that first king from the tribe of Judah, and then this promise was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, where it was said, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secured forever. Well, that wasn't secured in David because David died. So did Solomon. So did Solomon's son. And around 586 B.C. when Babylon came in and ransacked Jerusalem, there was no more kings that reigned in Israel. So how would this prophecy be fulfilled? Could this prophecy be fulfilled? Well, you know, when it comes to the genealogies in the Bible, I mean, they're, they're kind of the places where we look at them, we kind of skim through them, we, yeah, we need to get through this, we know they're important somehow, but uh, this, when you get to like Matthew chapter 1, we see why the genealogies were so important, because, you know, God put it in the hearts of these people to keep like a specific record, a detailed record of father to father to father to father going all the way back, and, and here's why we see this, what, why this is so important, because the fulfillment of all these prophecies we see in this just short verse in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, where it says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. So Jesus fulfilled all of those. He was the one who would be the, the blessing to all nations. Yes, he came, and, and the genealogies prove that Jesus' line goes all the way back to Abraham. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, it goes all the way back to Adam through Abraham. And so um, we kind of see another promise, of, like a fulfillment of this in, in Zechariah's prophecy when, his, um, when John the Baptist was born. In Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 70, he, he said this prophetically. Again, you know, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he had promised to the holy prophets long ago. And so he, he says there, um, through really the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he's saying that the birth of Jesus that was to come you know, short, shortly after he said this, this was to fulfill all the, the prophets from, from long, long ago. Interesting, right? So that's one we're going to focus on. The next one I want to talk about is this prophecy that Jesus, this Messiah, would be born of a virgin. Now the prophecy we see is actually in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 where it says the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and will call his name Emmanuel. Now this was something that was really, literally written 700 years before the, ver the birth of Jesus. Now just think about this, we're talking about something that is just quite honestly physiologically impossible. How, how does a virgin conceive? I suppose today, with all of our modern science, that's technically possible, but, but way back then, how would, be this, would, would this be possible, especially when the son would be called Emmanuel, God with us? How could that ever possibly come true? And yet we see the fulfillment of that in the Christmas narrative in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 through 23. 
This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom he was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and it said, Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Oh, so that's the way it was going to happen. And she's going to give birth to a son. You're going to call him Jesus, for you'll save his people from his sins. And in verse 22, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. We see the fulfillment in the, in the, in the Christmas story of something that was spoken literally 700 years prior to this. Something spoken that just seemed probably crazy at the time. How, how is this even possible? Another one we can look at is... This idea that the Messiah, Jesus, will be born in the town of Bethlehem. This was spoken by Micah the prophet, um, somewhere in the vicinity of 740 B.C. He says this prophetically, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come to you on my behalf. Now, this seems maybe like a small thing, but not when you consider that Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. You know, a short walk of 90 to 100 miles through mountains and whatever else. And I, I don't think Mary would have just happened to say one day, Joseph, you know, as I've been thinking about this, I think I'd really like to have our baby in Bethlehem. Let's, can you rent a donkey and then let's go on a 100-mile journey? And, and it, No, it's not the way it worked. So, so how in the world was, was God going to get this prophecy Fulfilled. Well, we see how in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, I'm going to add some of Brad's cliff notes to this, but, uh, but it says this. At, the time the Roman Empire, at, the, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus just so happened to decree that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And it just so happened that the guy that Mary was supposed to be engaged to just so happened to be of the tribe of Judah, which would have to go back to this place. <laughs> Anyways, as Joseph was a descendant of King David, and, and so he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, and, and David's, which was David's ancient home, and he, and he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, um, who, who was now expecting child. And, and while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Isn't it amazing how God just kind of put all these little pieces together? I mean, what a coincidence. That the, that the emperor of the Roman Empire decided when she was pregnant, just in time, to have to go to Bethlehem to have a baby. Think it was an accident? I think not. And so Jesus, from the line of David and Abraham, born of a virgin in a little town of Bethlehem, but that's not the only prophecy we see in the Christmas story. We see that this promised son would be like no other before him. Um, one of the more famous prophecies of, of the Messiah was found in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. You probably know this one. A child is born to, born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now that's a big one. How, how in the world was that going to be fulfilled in anybody? 
I mean, the child being born makes sense. I mean, Jesus was born. I mean, but, but what about the rest of it? How is a son going to be given? Well, we, we know that Jesus, although he was born, that's not when he came into existence. He was the eternal son of God from, from all eternity past. In John chapter 1 and in verses 1 through 4, we, we, we read these words you're probably familiar with. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. Nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And His life brought light to everyone. Well, who in the world is that talking about? Well, the answer is found a few verses later in verse 18. So the Word became flesh. Who is that? Jesus. And made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So when, when, when that prophecy said the child was born, was a son is given to us, that's literally John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. But that doesn't stop there. What about the government resting upon his shoulders? Now to an extent, that's speaking of something yet future. But there's still fulfillment in the sense of, say, Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus says, all authority in both heaven and earth have been given to me. Or, or even what we see in Philippians 2 and verses 9 through 11, God elevated him to a place of highest honor, gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, every tongue declare that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or even in Revelation 19, we see this already declared that, that Jesus comes and on his robe is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's, he's already in authority. He's already ruling and reigning in so many ways. But he says he's going to be a wonderful counselor. How, how is that possible? That was absolutely fulfilled in Jesus' life. His life gives definition to our existence. His life shows us exactly what God wants from us. I was thinking of John 18 and verse 37 where Jesus says, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. As we look at Jesus' life, we see truth. Exactly what God wants from us. Exactly how he wants us to live. What's expected of us. As Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Certainly Jesus was the wonderful counselor. Then everlasting father. How in the world could this be? Well, Jesus himself said in John 14 verse 9, If you've seen me, you've seen my father. Hebrews 1.3 tells us the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, sustains everything by His mighty power. Or Colossians 1 and verse 15 that tells us that Christ is the invisible image of the, invis is the visible image of the invisible God existing before anything was created, supreme over all of creation. He's fitting the bill pretty good, didn't he? And then he says, it also says he's going to be the Prince of Peace. And consider what the angels spoke to the shepherd to the night of Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, he says, That night there were shepherds standing in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. The radiance of, of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but an angel reassured them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And then suddenly the angel was joined by a whole host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom, with whom God is pleased. What was the peace those angels were talking about? Isaiah said he'd be the prince of peace, but it's just like some inner peace we get. Peace in troubled times. 
I mean, sure, that's part of it for God's people. But, but it was a greater peace than that even. And in fact, we see what this, what this greater peace is all about in the, in, the, in the book of Colossians in chapter 1. Listen to verses 19 through 22. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far off from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you're holy and blameless, standing before him now without a single fault. The Prince of Peace, or the greatest peace ever, he made peace between us and God for those who have received him as Savior. No longer is there that word the Bible talks of as enmity, where God's wrath was pouring down. Jesus took it all for us, making peace between us and him. Truly, he is the Prince of Peace and all those other things. And then we see the, the, the fifth prophecy we see in the Christmas story. Jesus would be called to escape to to and from Egypt. What we see in Hosea in 715 B.C. in Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Wow, how would that be possible? Well, it just so happened that some wise men from the east came and went to, went to, uh, to Jerusalem and, and found King Herod and asked, where's the king of the Jews to be born? Well, they met together and said, well, the Messiah should be born in, in, in Bethlehem. So they went, Herod said, well, when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go to and worship him. And yet, what we see is this fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2, in verses 13 through 15, where it says, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. They stayed there until Herod's death, and this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Pretty amazing. Well, also, another one, at the time surrounding the Messiah's birth, there would be great sorrow because of the loss of many children. Jeremiah in 600 B.C. roughly spoke in Jeremiah 31.15, a voice just heard in Ram, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children were no more. And read down in Matthew chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of this. When the, when the, when the wise men were warned not to go back to Herod, but to go another route, it infuriated Herod so much so that he sent out a decree that all the children and, and boys two, year, two years and younger in the area of Bethlehem would be essentially terminated, slaughtered, killed. And it says there in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18, a cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they were dead. Again, another prophecy. And then the last two I want to talk about just briefly are two more obscure Old Testament prophecies. Just interesting. One was found in Numbers 24, 17. 1,500 years before Jesus that said this, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. And he says, a star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. Just interesting that when, they, when the wise men came, this is where is the newborn king? We had followed his star from the east. Kind of interesting. 
Or, or Psalm 72 in verses 10 and 11, the western kings of Tarshish and other distant lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts and all the kings will bow before him. And it just so happened in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11, this says the, the wise men entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Again, they're a little more obscure. I guess you could probably argue maybe that they didn't have something to do with it at all, but it sure sounds awfully familiar to what happened, doesn't it? Now, those are just a handful of them, like literally just a handful, eight. There's like 290-some more that Jesus fulfilled in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, kind of everywhere in between. In fact, according to some sources, when, when it comes to the Bible, not even just Jesus, but in the Bible in general, according to the sources, around 2,500 prophecies, and about 2,000 of them have been fulfilled perfectly. Now, I hope that's interesting to you, it's interesting to me as I was kind of preparing this week, but the bigger question I guess is why does it matter to us today? I mean, it's kind of cool that God did it. It's, it's pretty amazing that he, he orchestrated all these things, but, but how does it affect us today in, in 2022 going into 2023? Well, one thing these prophecies tell me is that we serve a God that is absolutely sovereign, and that's an awesome thing. I mean, it means sovereign just simply means one who has supreme power, somebody who has supreme authority. If you've been around the church very long, we, we have this big word called omnipotent, that, that God is all-powerful. See, why does this matter to us? It matters just because the God that we belong to as Christians is in control all of the time. He has been since before the world began, and he will be long after the world is gone. I love what Isaiah said about him and, and about God, and I, or what God said to Isaiah in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He says, remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Isn't it awesome that the God we serve can say something like that? Or, or how about what Job said to, to the Lord in Job 42 and verse 2, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. That's comforting. That should give us confidence. Why? Because there's nothing that can thwart God's plans and there is nobody who can stop him. The Lord, God, God said this in Isaiah 14, 24, As I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. Do you realize that there is no one who can stop God's plan? When, when the Bible says that he is sovereign and it has absolute control, it, it literally means it. Like there is nobody that can stand in the way of God. What he has purposed will come to pass. And it doesn't matter if, if even Satan and all of his evil, evil armies stand against him. They're not going to be able to succeed. I mean, if you just think just about the events surrounding the Christmas account... If it shows anything to me, it shows us that God in His sovereignty has the power to accomplish this plan, even in spite of Satan's schemes. Have you ever stopped and thought about how much havoc Satan caused between Genesis 1 and Matthew 1? And we haven't even talked about the, probably the oldest prophecy ever in, in Genesis 3.15 where, where God judged Satan and he says, 
that there's going to be a day, he says, that there's going to be hostility between you and the woman and, and between your offspring and hers, and he will strike your head. You will strike his heel. There's this, this, this prophecy that someday Satan's head would be crushed. This was given literally thousands of years before Jesus. And from the moment God told Satan that his head was going to be crushed, he did everything that he could to stop it. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament. Who do, you, who do you think was behind Cain murdering the righteous Abel? You don't think Satan was whispering in his ear, tempting him? I think God made that pretty clear in Genesis chapter 4. I mean, Satan did so much work before the flood that they got to know his day. And it says that all the thoughts of people were continually evil all the time, so much so that God had to destroy the whole world, all except for Noah and seven others. I mean, we see Satan's handiwork in Abraham's life and Isaac's life and Jacob's life and kind of everywhere in between. You think it's by accident that they ended up in, after they ended up in, we know God drew all of them there, but after they ended up in Egypt, that they ended up in slavery? Get to this place where Pharaoh says to the midwives, kill all the babies, baby boys. You don't think Satan maybe was behind that just a little bit? Even when God rescued them, brought them to their own land. He did all that he could to manipulate these people, to get their hearts away from the Lord. So much so that the people turned away from God. So much so that God had to judge them. Civil war broke out. You have ten tribes in the north, a couple in the south. No longer a sovereign nation together. The ten tribes up in the north were, were taken over by the Assyrians, scattered all over the earth, still considered the lost tribes today. Years later, Judah even taken over. Babylon comes in, destroys them, ransacks the temple, destroys it, taken off to captivity for 70 years. Hey, they were released, but yet they weren't free. Persia took over. And maybe, I don't know, I'm thinking maybe in the book of Esther, Satan might have been behind this guy named Haman who convinced the king to, to have the entire Jewish population of the world murdered. God stepped in. I mean, we, we literally see this throughout the entire Old Testament. They weren't free because after the Persians came the Greeks, after the Greeks came the Romans. Yet in all of these things, God's plans were not thwarted. In fact, even though Satan didn't realize it, God had all of this in control all the time. While Satan was doing all that he could to stop God, what he didn't realize is that God was a thousand moves ahead of him the entire time, or probably more. In fact, what's really interesting is basically all those events, most of them anyways, God was sovereign in all those things too because he prophesied them to the prophets. The prophets told that there was prophets that went to the northern tribe that said, you're going to be judged. If you don't turn back, you're going to be judged. It's going to happen. God gave that message. God gave the message to the lower tribes of Judah. Babylon's going to come in. But guess what? After that, there's going to be this guy named Cyrus who was just probably a little kid, not even born yet, but he's going to come in after that. And I mean, the whole story was written. God was sovereign in absolutely all of it. It's amazing when you think about the sovereignty of God all the way throughout the Bible, even all the way up to Jesus' birth, Satan, Satan did all that he could to have, I mean, who do you think was behind Herod trying to get all the babies murdered? You don't think Satan was behind all that? And yet God's still sovereign. 
Not only does God have the power and the sovereignty to accomplish His plan, even though it was Satan, through Satan's schemes, but even in spite of people's sin, think about the line of screw-ups that were in the genealogy of Jesus. Liars and prostitutes, adulterers and murderers, illegitimate children, idol worshippers and scoundrels, and yet Jesus came through that line. And it brings me comfort because my God is sovereign and has a plan for my life. Even in spite of me, He's going to accomplish it. How awesome is that? How awesome is it that, that even in spite of the fact that we fall, in spite of the fact that we fall on our face, in spite of the fact that we mess up, God's still going to accomplish through our life what He's declared? Like, you sure? Absolutely. Proverbs 16 and verse 9, we can make our plan, but the Lord determines our steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many of the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And isn't it amazing in our life that it's usually through our greatest mess-ups that God does His greatest work? Only a sovereign God can do that. But it also shows us that God is faithful. If the prophecy surrounding Jesus' birth shows us anything, it shows us that we serve a God that does what He promises and has proven time and time again that He is a faithful God. His Word always stands. Why, why does God do that? Why is He so faithful? Well, He's faithful because He's a God of His Word. Um, I think of Numbers 23 and verse 19. God is not a man, so He doesn't lie. He's not a human, so He does not change His mind. Has He ever spoken and failed to act? Has He ever promised and not carried it out? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is No. Or 2 Corinthians verse one, chapter, chapter 1 and verse 20, for all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. God does what he does because he's a man of his word. He's a God of his word. He, he's faithful. And not some of the time, not most of the time. He's faithful all of the time. He's going to do what he says. I mean, think about this. Even when it meant doing the hardest thing he ever, had, he ever had to do, he still did it because he spoke it in advance. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident that Jesus was arrested. It wasn't an accident that he was mocked, beaten, whipped, nailed to a cross, crown of thorns put upon his head. It wasn't an accident that he was taken and buried in a rich man's tomb. It wasn't an accident that he rose from the dead. All of those things were spoken of way in advance, centuries before they happened. And yet God's a man of his, he's a God, he's a man, he's a God of his word. He always follows through. In fact, before the prophets were ever even born, before the world was ever made, Jesus, it says in Revelation 13 and verse 8, the Lamb of God crucified before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. God is faithful He's a God of His Word and He's faithful because He loves us. I mean, ask yourself, why is Christmas even a thing? Why in the world would God send His one and only Son to this evil place in the first place? Yeah, He said He would, but what's, what's the why? The why is He did it for us. For God so loved us, the world, that He gave His only one and only Son. That's why he did it. I mean, God declared the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, 
for one reason, to save sinners from an eternity separated from him in hell. That's why. I mean, the, the birth, life, death, I mean, if it shows us anything, it, it, it's, it, it, God will go to great lengths for his people he loves. Because all of this, those things were for us. And as we close, the last thing I want to say this is this. With the Christmas account, all these prophecies show me that he's sovereign, that he's faithful because he loves us. If he would do all of that for us, you know what that tells me? It tells me that God is trustworthy. Through God's sovereignty, through his faithfulness, he has proven over and over again that his word is true and he, he can be trusted. He, he has done all that he said he would do in the past, and because of that we can be sure that he will do what he has declared he would do in the present and in the future. Just, just bear with me as I get through this. When God's word says in Romans 10 and verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, can I tell you something? He'll do it. Call on his name, you'll be saved. When God's word says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, guess what? If we do it, he'll do it. When God's word says in John 1, 12, all who believe and accept Jesus will be given the right to become children of God, he means it. And he'll do it. When God's word says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he means it. And he'll give it. When God's Word says in Isaiah 41 and verse 10, don't be afraid for I am with you. Don't be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up by my victorious right hand. Guess what? He means it. And he'll do it. Or when God's Word says in Psalm 23 and verse 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He means it. And he'll be there all the way to our dying breath. When God's Word says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, guess what? He means it. And for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have made the decision to follow Him, the moment our last breath stops here, our eyes will open and meet our Savior face to face. He means it. See, when God speaks in His Word about the new heaven, the new earth, where sickness and disease and sorrow and death will be no more, we can be sure because our God is sovereign and our God is faithful, we can trust that those things are true and there's going to be a day when all of this pain is gone. But I can also say if that will come to pass for those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we can also be sure that all the things that God has declared for those who have rejected Him will also come to pass. By the word of God, he declares that there's going to be a day that Satan's going to be destroyed. Him and his minions cast into hell. And all those who refuse to bow their knee to Jesus as Lord will stand before him in judgment in one day. will give an account for their lives. And we read this in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, this picture of this, this eventual day. I saw this great white throne and, on, and, and, and him who sat on it from whom the face of the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which was the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works. But the things which were written in this book, 
The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death in Hades delivered the dead that were in them. And, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not written in the book of life was also cast into the lake of fire. Can I tell you something? He said it, he means it, and it's going to happen. All these prophecies that we talked about tonight, they're just, just a handful of them. There's tons of them. And he's batting a thousand. <laughs> Everyone perfect to the T. And if he has done it to this point, can I tell you something? We can be absolutely assured that it's going to happen all the way to the end, just like he's declared. He's the God that declares the end from the beginning. So what does that tell us? It tells me that if God is trustworthy, we should place our complete faith and trust in him. And if we belong to him, we should commit ourselves completely to him. Give our full allegiance to serve him each and every day. Because a God like that deserves to be served, deserves to be worshipped. And I'll close with this verse, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Friends, God is in absolute control. What his word has said, what he has declared will come to pass. Place your faith and trust in him. If you're here and you know him as Savior already, lean on his word. He's given it to us for, he's given it to us for a reason. Yes, to teach us, yes, to guide us, but, but it's also to encourage us, to strengthen us, to give us hope, to help us know that he's right there all the time. Trust him and lean into him. And if you're here and you've never made, never made a decision to follow Christ as Savior, can I tell you something? All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what the Bible says. He said it, and he will do it. I testify because I'm one who has. But as he said, it's your choice. You don't have to, but just understand that what the Bible says at the end is also true. So give your life to him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and Although we covered a lot tonight, Lord God, I, I hope it came through as, as just this one thing, God, that you are amazing. There's never a time that you're out of control, Father. You're always in control. You have, <laughs> you have the future planned out. Nothing takes you by surprise. And God, that gives me comfort. That gives me peace. Because God, I have placed, in my, faith and tr I have placed my faith and trust in you, Lord. Heavenly Father, I just pray for all of us here, Lord God, for those of us that know you already, that, that, we, would, that we would take comfort in your word, that you're with us, that, that, that even the trials that we face are for our own good. So much so that you tell us to count them as joy because you're producing in us Christ-likeness. Lord, let us trust in you. Let us, let us not be distracted by the things of the world or distracted by our trials or difficulties. Let us lean into you, Father, and just, just hold on tight to our sovereign God. And Father God, if there be anybody here that's never made the decision to follow you, Lord, just let them cry out to you tonight and just receive Jesus as Lord. Confess their sins. Ask to be forgiven and just ask Christ to come into their life, Lord, tonight. Just let them make that decision, Lord. We love you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close tonight, um, we're not going to sing like we usually do. I actually have a song.